0: the form of comics intimately What you need is a hobby. words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic, and there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year round nobody cares basketball year round nobody cares put on a star trek uniform people get a case of the giggles yeah hi somebody told me they make comic books here that's from superman smallville you have been trying that jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade it doesn't work oh it works you guys must read too many comic books or something people do not masturbate in the dc universe that was the biggest load of crap i've ever heard Welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and lately what I've been doing is talking about bunches and bunches of Batman comics. And the reason for that, <clears throat> as I've said in previous episodes, is because of the fact that what I typically do is podcast about the comics that I happen to be reading and enjoying right now, you know, so... Basically, what that works out to is, whatever you guys are hearing at any given time, those are the comics I'm reading at that moment, and hopefully, the love and affection and enjoyment that I'm getting from those comics comes through in everything that I say. That's the idea, at least. But anyway, as it goes right now, I've been working through a little bit of a Batman reading project. And specifically what I've been doing is kind of focusing my attention on year one era stories. Now, as far as Batman and his first year is concerned, it's a pretty fucking target-rich environment, to be honest with you. There is plenty of stuff to choose from. And the reason for that is because in a way that I don't think any other character can quite compete with... There's something about Batman in his first year that just carries a lot of dramatic uh, possibility, right? I don't know why, but this is a subject that is fascinating to so many people, you know? So Batman in general is pretty fascinating to a lot of people, but there's something specifically about his first year on the job that it just seems to capture people's imaginations. And I'm Certainly not any better uh, at explaining that than anybody else would be. I can only say that I'm as susceptible to it as anybody else. So there you have it. Now, as it goes for not everything that I've talked about in this mini series, not every single comic or story that I've talked about is part of the 1995 year one annual event that DC was running with, but that's been. The majority of it. And indeed, that will be the majority of it. But basically, for those of you who don't know, back in 1995, DC had an annual event where they used, instead of using their annuals as kind of a dumping ground for a crossover, as they had with, gee, let me think, as they had with Armageddon 2001, as they had with Eclipso, The Darkness Within, and probably other stuff that I'm forgetting about. Rather than using the annuals as a crossover, the annuals were instead themed, so everybody was basically telling his own story, but the common element was that all of these stories are year one. So Superman comics took place in his first year. The Flash took place in his first year. Green Lantern, first year. Batman, which is what we're talking about today. Batman, also first year. So, by and large, these comics turned out amazingly well, too. And so, I was, I guess, so taken with especially the annuals that what I decided to do was, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to do a series about all of the annuals. And then I thought, well, I'm kind of running with a Batman Year One theme there, so maybe it makes sense to kind of expand slightly beyond that, considering that I've got four annuals to choose from. And six episodes to work with. So I decided to be just a little bit creative. So that's why you're seeing what you are in fact seeing here. Or listening to, I should say. That's why you're hearing what you are in fact hearing right now. That sounded very insightful in my mind. But anyway, so to finally get down to brass tacks here, though, what I'm going to be talking about today is Legends of the Dark Knight, annual number five. Now, this is kind of significant, or I don't know about significant, but one kind of interesting bit of trivia, little factoid that I, that I kind of pieced together as I was putting all of these different episodes together and planning it all out. The villain of this, uh, of Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number 5, Number one, he's not really a villain at all. I mean, there's a sense in which he's kind of a victim of his own hubris or desperation or just however you choose to filter all of that. But the other thing to think about, <clears throat> apart from that stuff, is this is the only villain in any of the comics that I've, that I've talked about so far that hasn't found his way into a live action movie at some point or another. So whatever you want to do with that. Anyway... Legends of the Dark Knight annual number 5. And according to Mike's amazing world of DC, Legends of the Dark Knight annual number 5 was released on May the 2nd, 1995, which would mean that this was chronologically the first of the unless I'm much mistaken, I believe this would actually make this the first of the Batman related year one annuals that was released that year. So, whatever you want to do with that. Anywho, Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number 5. Story Within is entitled Wings. Cover artist is Enrique Alcatina. Writer is Chuck Dixon. Penciler is Enrique Alcatina. Inker is Enrique Alcatina. Colorist is Digital Chameleon. Letterer is Willie Schubert. Willie Schubert. Not really sure how to pronounce that dude's name, to be honest with you. Because sometimes what they want to do is put the fucking French pronunciation in there, so it could be Schubert, as you just say in English, but if you want to do it the way the French people do, you might say Schubert. So, it's all in how you look at it, I suppose, but however, however it's pronounced, editors are Chuck Kim and Archie Goodwin. Plot synopsis is as follows. Daryl A researcher at Federal Testing Labs checks out blaring Gotham Inquisitor newspaper headlines and all the fear-mongering going on concerning the Batman. He solicits opinions about the Batman from his fellow researchers. Most of them don't even believe that Batman actually exists. One researcher, which is to say Dr. Kirk Langstrom, chalks the whole thing up to mass hysteria. As it turns out, Dr. Langstrom is off in his own little world, He even ignores Dr. Francine Lee, his kinda sorta fiancé. Instead of focusing on her, Langstrom's fascinated by Bats. In Bats, he believes he's discovered a way to reverse the effects of his own deafness. His inner monologue about Bats is paired up with the scene of the Batman fighting with the Ridge Runners, a group of criminals who basically use zip lines, base jumping, and other extreme sports to escape from the Batman. The Batman, for his own part, is sick and fucking tired of being constantly outsmarted by this group of lowlifes. It's starting to turn into a personal grudge for him since the Batman can usually beat the snot out of anybody out of whom he decides to beat the snot. But these assholes keep escaping him and making him look like a chump. To address this little problem, the Batman attaches glider wings to his outfit. The idea being... The glider wings will allow him to pursue the ridge runners if they try escaping on another zipline. Meanwhile, Langstrom believes he's ready to take his genetic formula into trials. However, federal testing labs executives doubt the feasibility of his findings, but even if they didn't, it still wouldn't matter since they're operating on a very tight budget right now. Because of all that, Langstrom can't continue his work. Dejected, Langstrom decides to test his formula on himself. And it seems to work. At least at first, his hearing works perfectly. Meanwhile, as all that's going on, the Batman uses his new glider wings against the Ridge Runners. Who get a lucky shot off with a grapple gun and make mincemeat out of the Batman's glider wings. Elsewhere in Gotham City, Langstrom's having a pretty tough time. First, his formula fixed his hearing. Then it enhanced his hearing slightly beyond human levels. Then it enhanced his hearing to almost superhuman levels. Then it transformed him into a fucking bat mutant, which, needless to say, wasn't exactly what Langstrom originally wanted. Either way, he doesn't see any other choice except abandoning his job, his apartment, his fiance, and pretty much his entire life. Langstrom, now a full-blown human-slash-bat hybrid, flies through the city and stumbles across the Batman duking it out once again with the Ridge Runners. Langstrom swoops down and takes out the entire Ridge Runner gang without trying, or even really intending to. Which says a little something-something about how tough he is. Suffice it to say, Batman's suffering a bit from penal envy right about now, and that doesn't get much better by the time he arrives back in the Batcave. Because Alfred's watching the captured Ridge Runner gang make statements to the news media, accusing Batman of kicking the shit out of them, even though Batman himself knows who really got the job done. Because the Batman's very inventive and creative with names, he calls Langstrom's mutated form... Man Bat. Meanwhile, Francine and Dave have discovered Langstrom's notes about his bat formula and are determined to develop a serum that will reverse its effects. Francine's worried out of her mind about Langstrom. Daryl, the asshole from earlier in the story who read newspaper headlines, tries to comfort Francine by getting into her panties, but Francine's not having any of that and tells Daryl to go home already. Months go by and Man Bat falls in with a pack of actual bats. They live in a network of caves and tunnels as their home, and conveniently enough, these link up with the Bat Cave. So... Imagine the Batman's surprise when he returns from a night on the job and finds Man-Bat terrorizing Alfred right there in the Batcave. The Batman barely manages to get the situation under control and begins piecing together Man-Bat's true identity. He eventually deposits Man-Bat on Francine's doorstep, and she uses her experimental serum to restore Langstrom back to normalcy. Sure, Langstrom's lost nine months of his life and probably his job too, but... In the plus column, it would appear that he's not deaf anymore. Or another way of looking at it is his original bat formula may still be in his system. Either or, really. The end. So, what did I think? Well, right from the outset, you know, just looking at this cover, it's... it's, Batman wrestling with Man Bat, and there's truth in this cover, just not necessarily literal truth, because it looks like they're outdoors or something like that, because of the fact that it appears to be raining on the cover. And as far as I know, it doesn't rain in the Bat Cave, and the Bat Cave is the only place that Ma- that a uh, Batman and Man Bat ever fought each other. So, like I say, this isn't literal truth, but there is nevertheless a lot of truth on the cover. That is neither good. Nor is it bad. It's merely true. So, in any case, I gotta tell you, I really was not crazy about the art in the story. It's like, it's like Enrique Alcatina. His style kind of struck me as what you might get as sort of a confused mashup between Joe Staten, on the one hand, and on the other hand, Joe Kubert. So imagine what that could look like. Joe Staten crossed with Joe Kubert. Not really my blend, to be honest with you. So I like Joe I like Joe Staten. Don't get me wrong, but I've never really been all that big on Joe Kubert, and I really don't like Joe Kubert mixed with elements at least of Joe Staten's style. So, I don't know. I mean, this is not bad art. Let's be clear on that. But at the same rate, this... I couldn't help wondering, as I read this story, what would Joe Staten have done with this as a comic, you know? What might this have looked like? And it's like anything, you know, you need to be careful asking yourself that question, because number one, it's unknowable. And number two, it just might break your heart. In any case... I don't mean any of this as a slam on Enrique call it uh Enrique Alcatina. I'm just saying that I wasn't yeah, I I just wasn't big on on the art in this story. So, I doubt Enrique Alcatina is listening to this, but if you are, dude, no offense, it just wasn't for me. So, from a writing standpoint though, I know better than to bet against Chuck Dixon. And one of the things that gets established very early on in this story is the fact that Kirk Langstrom is deaf. Now, I honestly don't know if that's something that Chuck Dixon developed specifically for this story. But assuming he did, dude, fucking brilliant. Because, I mean, just from a writing standpoint... Okay. I love... Batman, the animated series, all right, but now and then, I guess for because of the fact that they only had about a twenty or so minute run time to work with, character motivations weren't necessarily as well fleshed out as they might have been, right so in the case of on leather wings, which let's face it, the comparison between this this annual and on leather wings is um well. Yeah, it's, a, it's kind of inevitable, really. But in On Leather Wings, Kirk Langstrom, he didn't really have a, a rational motivation to transform himself into man-bat. He just didn't. And, I mean, he had a, a, a cushy job as a genetics researcher and or whatever his fucking job was. He had a cushy job there. His wife was smoking hot. And... You know, you just kind of have to think, this guy, of all people, has no business wanting to be something other than what he is. Langstrom in this story, though, is deaf. Now, guys, I'm not deaf, and so there's a limit to how far I can really speak to that world, but one of the things that most deaf people will tell you is that, in a way that I don't know that any other handicap is... I don't know if you can say this about just any other handicap, but deaf people, it's like they have a culture all their own precisely because of the fact that sound, which is when you think about it, the fundamental underlying sense upon which everything else is based. They don't have this. And so as a result, they don't necessarily view the world the same way that we do. Shit, they don't even view life the same way that we do. You know, not always. They have their own ways of doing things. And for some of them, it's reasonable to believe that they would want to have their hearing, all other things being equal, you know? And so what you have here is a guy with a very compelling reason to develop basically what amounts to the man-bat formula. And then on top of that, a reason for him to single out bats more than anything else. You know, why bats as opposed to, I don't know, fucking regular humans? Well, call it overcompensation, I guess, right? And so, this is just such inventive writing because, honestly, guys, the alternative to this is to position Langstrom as a villain. And I... I've never really viewed... Now, keep in mind, I mean, I don't... I I haven't read just shitloads and shitloads of man-bat stories, but I've always kind of had a hard time viewing Kirk Langstrom as an out-and-out villain, you know? To me, he always seemed... relatable in that this is something that's happened to him, you know? It isn't necessarily... He's not necessarily evil, you understand. This is just something that he has done and maybe didn't understand the consequences. But Chuck Dixon basically provides a dividend here. He basically says, well, you know what, the way that things have typically been done up to this point, that stuff's all well and good, no problem with it. But there's another layer here. You know, uh, there was another layer of motivation that Chuck Dixon saw as an amazing dramatic possibility. And I think it turns out extremely fucking well. You know, this is such an insightful decision to make, just from a creative standpoint. Make this guy deaf. And now it's almost like you don't even have to explain why a guy like this would want to be able to hear like a bat. Dude, talk about overcompensating. So what I'm saying is that that actually, it it actually works for me, you know, pretty well. I didn't need to be persuaded about why this needs to be done, you know, just like a modicum of thought, and you pretty well have it right away, right? And so, other than that, it's almost tempting to say that this is a fairly conventional Batman story. Batman wants to take down this big gang of criminals, and he's just not able to do it. And here again, Chuck Dixon saw dramatic possibility, or at least... eh, character development to be mined here because what this basically sets out is not just that batman is driven not just that batman is determined to to get his man as much as anything you could you could derive a fairly i think a fairly justifiable uh Motivation of competitiveness on Batman's part. He wants to show them who the better man is, you know. And you could easily view this as being somewhat about ego, somewhat personal for him, you know. And again, the, guy, the, the type of guy that is capable of doing the things that Batman is capable of doing, he's not going to settle for second best. You know, he wants to take these guys down. He wants to be the man, you know? And I guess what I'm driving at here is that every single layer of motive here, every single thing that happens has a very understandable cause behind it. Francine wants to, wants to find Kirk and, and bring him back to normal because she loves him. Kirk wants to, he wants to be able to hear and do things the way that normal people do without this handicap standing in his way. Batman just wants to fucking clean up Gotham City. There's not a whole lot of deeper meaning to all of that. You know? And it kind of sort of pisses him off a little bit that the Ridge Runners can basically run rings around them. You know? So, you know, the, what I'm saying is, this Enterprise, all of it, it pretty much all of it, it, it just rings true. You know? And... Of all characters that you can possibly turn into a sort of uh, monster character or, or horror movie type of character, Man Bat is pretty much your go-to guy, you know? He's the guy that you start him off low and then you show his, his rise and fall and ultimately his redemption, and that's a powerful story and that's exactly what happens here Kurt's, kurt kirk starts off pretty low and then he finds a way to get his hearing back and then it slowly backfires but then it gets bigger and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and this thing that he that he attempted to set out which you know or rather that he set out to do this thing that he wanted to achieve guys when you think about it how How honorable is that? You know, I mean, guys, if I had it within my ability to find a cure for deafness, that'd be fucking awesome. You know, who wouldn't want to be able to do something like that? And especially since Langstrom, of all people, has got a personal motivation there. But the price he pays. So it all just kind of it all just kind of rings true. Now, yeah, there is this—it's a—it's a little bit of a tropey type of moment that we see on page ten, where basically the big bosses at uh, Langstrom's company don't want to fund his work anymore because, honestly, they believe this man is either an idiot, a crackpot, or a, or, or a psycho—pick uh, one. You know, he's going to be one of those. And there's a degree to which these small imaginations. This is what I find about people who, guys, they may have a a decent IQ, but if they just don't have the imagination, they have a way of wanting to bring everybody down back to their level. You know, there's a reductive type of person out there who views the world not only in very absolute terms, but just doesn't have the imagination to understand higher concepts. And it's people like this that you want to keep far the fuck away from, like, real leadership positions. Like, imagine somebody like this, right, running for president. God help us all, you know? And that's basically the type of asshole nitwit that's that's running the company that Kirk works for. And, guys, we've seen this trope. It's been done a thousand times in a thousand TV shows and in a thousand movies. But... For some reason, you know, little standbys like this, little barriers to a a character, or actually, I suppose, an unwitting antagonist, but an antagonist nevertheless, these people being basically the motivation that causes the antagonist to do something rash, one might say. I don't know why, but it's always when it's done well, it's very effective. Now, when it's used as a crutch, less so. But leave it to Chuck Dixon to use it just right here. This is not a crutch. You know, this is basically yet another layer of motivation that Kirk Langstrom needs, just from a logic standpoint, to use this shit on himself. You know, so Langstrom needs a reason to devise a formula. So he's deaf. Langstrom needs a a reason to to not have a necessarily perfect formula. So there's limited funding. And now, Langstrom needs a reason to use this imperfect formula on himself. And they've given it to him. So, like I say, when it works across that fucking many levels, that's when you know that Chuck Dixon is fucking awesome. So, don't mess with Chuck Dixon. He will end you. So, anyway, that's page 10. Moving right along, page 11. We see this... And this is page 11 at the very bottom of the page. We see this uh, this kind of glory shot of the bat outfit with the glider wings attached. And if this seems a little kind of sort of totally similar to Batman Returns, I have to assume it's because it is completely similar to Batman Returns. So Chris Nolan basically would have, and I think, yeah, actually he did, give... A Batman memory cloth to enable him to glide around, but I don't think that memory cloth was yet a thing in the 90s, so this was a decent alternative to it, one might say, and again, this kind of speaks to the fact that this is definitely a first-year Batman on the job here because these glider wings are so impractical as to be useless. I mean, this is literally the only thing you could ever use them for, and even here, their effectiveness... Well, the jury is still out on it. Put it that way. Now, excuse me Well, I get a drag off of my e-cig here. Anyway, so moving right along, uh, pages 11 and 12, Francine swings by... Oh, is this even page 11? Sorry, pages 12 and 13, my apologies. Pages 12 and 13... Francine swings by uh, Kirk's lab and basically finds some wreck and shop on the place de- uh, destroying everything because of the fact that his funding got turned down. And so basically Langstrom chases her out and decides, "Hey, fuck it. I'm testing this stuff on myself." And again, this kind of speaks to the horror movie aspect of it. You can almost hear the horror music going on in the background where Langstrom is kind of having a, a a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde moment, or this is the Frankenstein moment, or just fucking whatever. You've seen this type of thing in a thousand monster oh. movies a thousand times, you know? So the similarity was not lost on me. You know, the, the convulsions that he has near the bottom of the page where he accidentally smashes the entire lab and then collapses on the floor. And overall, just really well done. You know, really... It's on the one hand, you get the, the horror movie element of it, but you're not distracted by the horror movie element of it, if that makes sense. So, anywho, so then from there, we have this sort of drawn out sequence where first Langstrom and Francine go out for a night on the town, and then we transition over to Batman, who once again gets taken out by the Ridge Runner gang as he tries using his his glider wings to keep up with them, and needless to say, doesn't really work. And then on page 20, this is when we start getting into a little bit of the horror movie transition where this thing that had been a blessing originally is now turning into a curse, you know, because Langstrom can hear the entire city. His inner monologue even says, sounds, the city comes alive in my ears, a car horn, a barking dog, a couple arguing in Spanish, the creak of a floorboard two stories up, a man whistling over on Vanguard. Then he's laying on the floor in a fetal position saying, or thinking to himself, what have I done to myself? And we get the answer to that in pretty short order, because by the time page 22 rolls around, we see that he's been transformed into a hideous mutant bat monster. Shit, I hate it when that happens. So anyway... Elsewhere, Bruce Wayne is—and I, I, I got to tell you, I kind of like how Bruce and Kirk are kind of, sort of, but not really on kind of parallel journeys throughout this story because Kirk is undergoing a very unwelcome transformation. You know, he's basically achieving—he's achieving things that are far beyond what he originally wanted— the struggle that Bruce has been having is that his own limitations are a lot lower than what he wanted. So there's a kind of point-counterpoint going on here where both Kirk and Bruce are completely miserable due to their limitations, but for very different reasons and because of very different causes. You know, And there's a degree to which you know, you, you're kind of left wondering, well, who's better off? Kirk tried to rise above his limitations and is suffering for it. And Bruce tried rising above his limitations. Well, actually, first, Kirk tried rising above his limitations and succeeded. And now he's suffering for it. Whereas Bruce tried rising above his limitations and failed. And now he's miserable because of it. So in the final analysis, you're left kind of to wonder which of them has a right to be more pissed off right now at himself. And I don't know, I guess it's all in how you look at it, I suppose. So anyway, moving right along, we basically see more of Langstrom really going off the deep end, and let's call it what it is. He's not coping very well, let's say. And basically, the the approach that Chuck Dixon is taking with this story is not that the formula that that Langstrom used on himself has temporary effects, and they eventually wear off and then he returns to normal, which, as far as I know, is typically the way that this has always been shown in comics and uh, cartoon shows before this. This is it's almost like this is a permanent state. or for that matter, we may not fully know what the end of this of this transformative process for Langstrom might have been. It's off to a pretty fucking ugly start so far, though. And I kind of like the fact that this is... All other things being equal, understood to be permanent. You know, it kind of adds that extra degree of pathos that... Kirk can feel his own... Humanity slipping away. And I don't just mean that in a biological sense. You know, he's becoming more and more bat-like all the time. I also mean that from a more... From more of a psychological standpoint... He's starting to develop bat instincts, a sort of a bat consciousness, so on and so forth. And he his humanity is being subsumed slowly but surely, you know? And that it, that just adds that extra degree of drama and pathos to the whole thing that it's not melodramatic. And for that, I'm grateful. It's, it's just really effective. Put it that way. Really good stuff. Very well written. You also get the idea that his apartment, he, as we see it on page 26, is a real fucking mess just because you look at uh, the carpet under his feet and what you see is all empty cans and food wrappers and all these other things sitting on the ground. You get the idea he hasn't left home in quite a while, you know. So again, it, it enhances the metaphor of Kirk being completely alienated from society it's very effectively done. So I like that. That that plays for me. So <sighs> moving right along, Batman basically tries once again, this is on page 31, Batman tries once again taking on the Ridge Runner gang this time without the glider wings and doesn't exactly work that well for for him because of the fact that this time they actually came armed, which is a new thing for them. And you know what? I could be mistaken here, but you get the idea that Chuck Dixon is sneaking in a tiny little bit of commentary here because basically what the Ridge Runner gang is out to do is steal the only existing print of a brand new movie that's coming out. It says, Batman's internal monologue says, they came to steal the premiere print of the film the only final cut of the movie in existence, worth millions to video pirates. Or maybe they'll ransom it. The studio would pay dear. The movie's just what the world needs. Another dose of gratuitous violence, as Batman is being shot at by a member of the Ridge Runners. And... Touché, Chuck Dixon. Touché. Now... There is a moment though that I kind of have to call bullshit on. Batman says this is the only final cut of the movie in existence and I find that a little bit hard to believe just because this would be How shall I put I'm I'm not familiar with all of the the jargon and terminology myself but at the time that this comic book was released a lot of movies were put together without using digital technology, you know, no digital editing or anything like that. And so I think a lot of movie studios were actually still using Moviolas to edit films and stuff. But nevertheless, what you see at the, at the premiere of a film is a print struck from the master. I doubt that they're going to screen a master of a movie at, at a movie premiere, but they do strike prints from those masters, and so they could just as easily strike another print. Now, the minute you admit that, you pretty much have to write off this part of the story. So I don't want to do that, but I'm. <clears throat> it does need to be said that I don't think, I don't think this it would actually be that big of a problem. I mean, no, that you'd fuck up their whole little media event and the premiere and all all of that stuff. But push comes to shove. It's not that big a problem. They could just strike another print and be done with it. So who cares? But whatever. Like I say, the minute you take that out of the story, you this entire part of the story pretty much falls apart. And that's no good. So just don't think about it too much. That's the point. So anyway, so Man-Bat swoops onto the scene, beats the shit out of the Ridge Runners. And that's when Batman finally has an access point now into Kirk Langstrom's story. And it's kind of striking to think, you know, just how little Batman has to do with Man-Bat in this story. But when they finally do cross paths, which never really happens until uh, page 43, when they finally do cross paths, basically Batman is treating Man-Bat as an intruder in the Batcave, but not necessarily an enemy. He's an intruder. But he's not an arch nemesis. Does that make sense? Speaking of the Batcave, it's a completely developed crime lab here. And on top of all of that, Batman roars up in the Batcave in the Batmobile. Now, other comics I've talked about in this series, basically they've made it clear that Batman doesn't have a Batmobile. He, and while he does have a Batcave it's not the sophisticated setup that he has here. But number one, there are really two sort of answers to that. Number one, with these year one stories, I'm not really too fussy about continuity. You know, what is Jim Gordon's actual police rank? You know, does Batman have a Batmobile or does he not? You know, stuff like that. Don't sweat the small stuff, guys. The other thing to consider, though, is that this story takes place over the span of nine months, which leaves plenty of time for those other stories to happen, and then for Batman to develop all of this stuff. And then this can, you, you could basically say that those other stories take place between pages of this story. So that's another way of looking at it. So this doesn't necessarily have to be discontinuity between the other year one annuals. Although, like I say, even if it is, the way I look at it is, Batman's continuity in year one, especially in this vintage of the DC universe, it's a loosey-goosey type of thing. It's not absolute, and I typically don't get all that upset about it. As a matter of fact, I'm a lot harder on Superman's year one continuity in the post-crisis era than I would ever be on Batman's, just because Batman, his entire continuity was so fucked up from day one, I just don't see what what it's worth to, to split hairs over, you know, this continuity tidbit or that one or whatever, you know, it's just, that doesn't make sense to me, you know. I don't get that, basically, is what I'm saying. So anyway, so the fight's on, you've got Batman and Man-Bat swinging around the Batcave, beating the shit out of each other, and basically what Batman's trying to do is knock Man-Bat out. He's not necessarily, again, not treating Man-Bat as an enemy, per se, and as a result, Batman's kind of playing kind of easy with Man with Bat because he's not using lethal methods, but he does need to be able to uh, take him down once and for all. That much is sure. So all, all in all, it's not. this is not a lengthy epic and high energy type of fight scene it gets the job done, but it's not, this is not the center point of, or the centerpiece, I should say, of this story, you know? And that, again, speaks to, you know, how might Joe Staton have handled this story? Or, for, shit, for that matter, how might Graham Nolan have handled this story, you know? Might it been a little bit more of a visually engaging type of action scene? The one between Batman and Man-Bat? We will never know. Unfortunately. So, either way, though, it, that little action scene accomplishes what it needs to accomplish and then from there, what we get is kind of falling action of Batman returning Man-Bat to Francine, and then she uses their, the experimental serum on him to cure him of his bat mutation, which ultimately works and puts everything back to normal and then from there, the end ends happily. And, guys, I gotta tell you, one of the reasons that why this issue works for me overall is because there's a very human—actually, <clears throat> let me rephrase that. There are very human elements of this story that, you know, the characters are all speaking from a rational and relatable point of view. So— There's that going on. But more than that, this is just a fun superhero story. And it's kind of played a little bit as a light horror movie. I mean, they don't go full horror movie or full monster movie with this thing. But if you recognize the one or two or three winks to... I guess the horror movie or monster movie genres... You'll recognize those moments as what they are in this story. But this is still a superhero story. You know, a very fun one at that. So... All in all, I really enjoy this. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I don't think this has ever been reprinted anywhere. As far as I know, the only way to get your hands on this story is to get your hands on... Actually, I'm looking at Mike's Amazing World of DC right now, and I'm going to have to revise that. This was actually reprinted in the Batman 4 of a Kind trade paperback from 1998, which... What's... It looks... At a glance, it looks like this yeah this is basically a reprint of all of the 1995 batman year one annuals so boy i got it's a good thing i checked because i did not know that so anyway but so i guess apart from that and i have every i, I would assume that that trade paperback is no longer in print but that nevertheless, is the only reprint that's listed on Mike's Amazing World of DC. So my guess is the original back issue is probably going to cost a lot less than the Batman four of a kind trade paperback. But whichever of those you can get, I highly recommend picking it up. This is just a fun adventure superhero story, you know? And guys, I got to tell you, you know, I happen to believe that there is more to comics than just superheroes on the one hand, but on the other hand, guys, at the same time, there's nothing wrong with superheroes. You know, I love superheroes. That's my favorite genre of comics. So, you know, for those of you who remember me saying that comics can be more than just superheroes, yes, I said that, and yes, I stand by that, but at the same rate, you know, what comics do is, I don't know, I don't want to say what they do best, but what one thing they do extremely well is superheroes, and this is a fun superhero story, you know, tons of fun. Love it. Anyway, so uh, pick it up however you can, whether it's in that four-of-a-kind trade paperback or if you just buy the original comic. Either one of those is going to be well worth your time, effort, and money in doing. And that, I think, is pretty much it for Legends of the Dark Knight Annual number 5. So, as it happens, that's also pretty much it for me this week. So, bye, everybody. I will see you next week. Star Trek, comic books, mythology, video games, toys, Star Wars, just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcasts, presented by two true freaks. Come join me. Gene Hendricks for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with and be careful or you might just learn something before we're done The Hammer Podcast is available monthly both on its own iTunes feed and at 2TrueFreaks.com Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo and more. And in 2015 we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Cree Scroll War The arrival of Marvel Team-Up Bill Murray as the Human Torch Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne And of course, Marvel 2-in-1 All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher The Fantastic Cast Insert catchy tagline here Wait, what? which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18.